1 Samuel 18. We're going to read the first nine verses. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped him of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang one to another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our shepherd and that you look after us. And we thank you that you have given us your word. And that word, as we study it together week by week, is such a source of steadiness, encouragement, balance, challenge, and perspective. And we pray that the Spirit of God, with the Word of God, would do the same this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, 1 Samuel chapters 18 to 20, which is the section you have printed in the service sheet, is an important episode at a critical point in this narrative. The preceding episode, 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, is rightly one of the best-known episodes in the Bible, for it is a critical turning point in the history of God's people. David, God's chosen and anointed king, defeated Goliath. What is the role of God's chosen and anointed king? It is to use the language from earlier in 1 Samuel, to go out before us, us being God's people, and fight our battles, to face up to and to fight and to defeat our enemy. In the history of God's people, back then that meant the Philistines and their champion Goliath. They were the enemies of God and his people. They defied God and his people. And David, God's chosen king, went out in all of his weakness before God's people, 1 Samuel 17, and defeated their enemy Goliath. These events in the history of God's people foreshadow the life and work of the Lord Jesus, God's chosen and anointed forever king. David points us to Jesus, King David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who went out before us, faced up to, fought, and defeated the enemy Satan. Jesus on his cross defeated Satan in his power over humanity. And in defeating Satan, Jesus defeated sin. He defeated sin by removing for believers the penalty for sin. He defeated sin by conquering for believers the power of sin. 
He defeated sin by securing for believers an eternity free from the very presence of sin. Jesus went out before us and defeated Satan. Jesus went out before us and defeated sin. And Jesus wonderfully went out before us and with his resurrection from the dead, defeated death, the last enemy for the believer. There is the promise of resurrection to everlasting life. David's victory over Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, was a critical turning point. But David's victory over Goliath points us forward to Jesus' victory at the cross and at his resurrection. If David's victory over Goliath was a critical turning point, Jesus' victory over Satan's sin and death was the critical turning point in the history of God's people, indeed in the history of all humanity. That was the day in history everything changed. Now, yes, the struggle goes on. The struggle with Satan, who remains the enemy of God and the enemy of the progress of his kingdom and the enemy of God's people. Yes, the struggle with sin and temptation goes on. Yes, the struggle with sickness and suffering and the struggle of journeying through the dark valleys and the darkest valleys of all goes on, but the decisive battle has been won. Victory is assured. Satan faces an eternity in hell. Our sinful self is mortally wounded. It is dying. Our new self in Christ, the indwelling spirit of the risen Jesus, is alive in us, changing us, and is eternal. And death is defeated. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for a place is prepared before me. Now, that is what Jesus achieved when he went out before us and fought our battles, when he faced up to, when he fought and defeated our enemy. Jesus' victory for us was achieved at great cost, David defeated Goliath with a sling and a stone. Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death by becoming sin himself, by bearing wrath himself, and by his own death. Victory was achieved at Calvary. Foolishness in the eyes of unbelievers, but the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So with 1 Samuel 17 in our minds, at one level David and Goliath, but add an ultimate fulfillment level, the Lord Jesus achieving that glorious victory over Satan, sin, and death at Calvary. With that as the backdrop, with that as the context, we come naturally to chapters 18 to 20 with the question, how do we respond to God's anointed King? Or let me phrase it another way. How do we respond to God's anointed King as we see him go out and fight and defeat Satan, sin, and death? At extraordinary cost to himself, 
And these chapters lay before us very clearly. And if you have a service sheet in front of you, you will see that I have put across the text rejection, devotion, rejection, devotion. And that runs all through these chapters. How do we respond to God's chosen and anointed King who has gone out before us and fought and won? Let me focus first on rejection. The narrative focuses on Saul's rejection of David. Let me show you in the text. Chapter 18, verses 8 to 9, Saul's reaction to David's success, he was very angry. He saw David as a threat. Saul's rule, and Saul was the king, after all, that God had rejected. David was the king that God had chosen and anointed. Saul's rule will be undermined by David, and verse 9 It's a powerful statement. Saul kept an eye on David from that day on. Reading on verses 10 and 11 of chapter 18, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. He raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. Saul picked up his spear and he hurled his spear at David, trying to pin him to the wall. Twice he did it. Twice David evaded him or God protected him, I think we're meant to see. Saul tries to kill God's anointed king. And of course, that's what happened all over again. When humanity tried to kill God's anointed king, Jesus. Then at chapter 18, verse 17, Saul has promised to give his daughter Merib to David as his wife, and he does so, but with a condition or with a price. Here is my elder daughter Merib. Saul says to David, I will give her to you for a wife. Only, here's the condition, the bride price, be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battle. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against you, but let the hand of the Philistines be against me. Saul wants to put David in as much danger as possible, hoping that he will be killed by the Philistines. And then even more dark and bleak, chapter 19, verse 1, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Chapter 19, verses 9 to 10, for the second time, Saul tries to kill David by throwing his spear at him. And then chapter 19, verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. Why am I repeating all of these verses? Because the Bible text does so in order for us to grasp the relentlessness of this, the implacable rejection by Saul of God's anointed king. 
Chapter 19, verse 19, word came to Saul that David is in Naioth in Ramah. David had gone there to be with Samuel, God's prophet. So Saul sent men to capture David. He sent three groups of men, of soldiers, each of whom failed to capture David. Eventually, Saul, verse 23, goes himself, intent on saving David and killing him. Now, all the way through this, God is protecting David, his anointed. And we'll turn to that in subsequent weeks. But the point in these chapters is that we are meant to see in Saul the constant, focused, rejection, rejection, antagonism, opposition to God's anointed king. And then chapter 20. Now, I'd encourage you to read the whole of chapter 20 later today. It is a a very powerful chapter, a very moving chapter. We don't have time to read it in the service. Let me just quickly tell you what happens. David has fled from Naioth and Ramah, where he was with Samuel and the other prophets, and he seeks out Jonathan. Chapter 20, verse 1, very poignant words from David, the anointed king, to Jonathan, the son of Saul. Jonathan, what have I, what have I done? What, what, what is my guilt? What is my sin before your father such that he seeks my life? And Jonathan agrees to a request from David, described in chapter 20, that will elicit, that will show the extent of Saul's hatred of him and the danger David is in. The occasion is a feast that David would have been expected to be at, along with Jonathan, Saul's son, and the other military commanders. David will stay away, and if Saul asks where he is, Jonathan is to say that uh, David has gone to his home in Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And if Saul responds positively, then David will know that Saul is not against him. But if Saul is angry, then David will know that Saul is indeed against him. Jonathan and David agree a signal that only the two of them will understand, a signal that will tell him if Saul is against him or not. And as events unfold, it is clear that Saul is indeed implacably opposed to David. Let me just read with you a few verses, verses 30 to 34 of chapter 20. Follow with me as I read. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, "'You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness?' For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Now just jump forward in history the Lord Jesus. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And they cried then, crucify him. Saul, anticipating that, hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. And then Jonathan signals to David as he promised, Saul is indeed, David, implacably opposed to you and is determined to kill you. And so David flees from Saul. Saul rejects 
God's chosen anointed king. Now, stand back from the events of history described here. And off the back of chapter 17, which is about God's king defeating God's enemy, we are faced with one of two reactions. The one we are considering here is rejection. We will not submit to God's anointed king. Why does Saul reject God's chosen anointed king? Not because he is unaware of who David is. Saul knows exactly who David is, yet in spite of that knowledge, rejects him. Let me give you an important reference. It's in chapter 18, verses 28 to 29. Chapter 18, verses 28 to 29. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. You would expect that sentence to continue. He trusted him as his, anoint, as his king. But it doesn't say that. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that his daughter loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, but he would not submit to him as God's chosen and anointed king. One of the most challenging things about our studies in 1 and 2 Samuel is that quite often our emotions find themselves in the wrong place. So our emotions here might be with Saul. Surely it is far too much to expect that the king God has rejected, God had rejected Saul as king, would submit to the king God had chosen in his stead. Is that not far too much to expect? Now the truth is, that is exactly what it takes when anyone is converted. Saul is representative of all humanity who by nature react the way he reacted to God's chosen and anointed king. When we are faced with God's right to rule in our lives, when we see that God has made Jesus his king, when we see that God has made Jesus the infallible judge of every human being, when we are told that we will stand before him and give an account of our lives, our natural reaction is to fight that. Why should God have authority over me? Why should God dictate the way that I live? We reject God's authority. We will not give up our right to rule our lives as we see fit. We will not submit. And that is exactly how people react to Jesus. They will not have him. And that is often the case even when they see what he has done, even when they see what he did at the cross, 
even when they see him raised from the dead. Even though the Lord is with Jesus and his kingdom, even when they see that his kingdom is growing and unstoppable in its progress in the world, even when they see and they know they reject him, they may even, and I have seen this over the years as a minister, believe it all, but not submit to Jesus. I could give you countless examples of people like that. You might be listening. You might be one of these people who see and know, but you refuse to accept Jesus' rule in your life. You simply cannot muster the humility to step off the throne and let Jesus rule. Well, let me say to you, as we watch Saul's life fall apart, your rejection of Jesus is futile. It will not change the fact that he is God's anointed king. Your rejection will lead you to a living hell for all eternity for one reason and one reason alone. You never found the humility to submit to Jesus. Maybe you are on the edge of a decision. The Spirit of the risen Jesus is appealing to you, pleading with you, as you consider Jesus dying on the cross taking your sin, taking God's judgment for your sin, Jesus dying on the cross to save you, rising from the dead to give you life. Maybe this is a decision day for you. Do not resist Jesus any longer. Submit to his loving rule and believe in him as your Savior and your Lord. Let me appeal to those of you who know that the Lord is with Jesus and that he is God's chosen king and that he died and that he rose Yield to him. Submit to him. Come under his loving rule. And do not reject him. Now let's turn now to consider a very different reaction to God's king devotion. And maybe in the sovereignty of God, you started listening to this sermon in the camp of rejection, but have found your way by God's grace into the side now of devotion.
devotion or rejection, there is no middle ground. I find that so wonderfully refreshing in the Christian life. There is no ambivalence or indifference or half-heartedness. Devotion. Love. Zeal. Passion. There is no soft language to describe a true believer. The narrative focuses on Jonathan's devotion to David. Let's read these moving verses at the start of chapter 18 again. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan loved David, not believed in him or accepted or knew that he was the anointed king of God, all of which is true. He loved him. And we must not evade that is the word used to describe a believer with respect to God's anointed king. It is love. Expressed differently, chapter 19, verse 1, delight. And then repeated, loved, chapter 20, verse 17. Jonathan loved David. Jonathan loved God's anointed king. And remember who Jonathan was. He was Saul's son. He was the crown prince. But he saw and he knew that the Lord was with David and that David was God's anointed king. But unlike his father, who also saw and knew the same but rejected David, Jonathan was devoted to him. Unlike his father, Jonathan accepted David's right as God's chosen and anointed king to rule over him. There's a believer's anatomy. They accept Jesus' right as God's chosen and anointed king to rule over them. Jonathan made that abundantly clear by taking off his royal robe, his armor, his belt, and his sword, and giving them to Jesus, a symbol of his submission. It's like kneeling before Jesus at the foot of his cross. And if by nature Saul is like all humanity, implacably resisting the sovereignty of God and the demand that we submit to God's King, then Jonathan is like all believers, moved as they are by the Spirit of God to submit to God's King. It was not easy for Jonathan to do that any more than Saul, his father. It is not easy for anyone to take off all that they have that indicates their autonomy, their rule, their self-determination. It is not easy to take that off and come on one's knees before God's anointed King, the Lord Jesus. But Jonathan saw that the Lord was with David. He knew who David was. And so, the crown prince yielded and in humility 
pledged his life to him. Now, this is not about friendship between two believers primarily. Yes, there is stuff we can learn from Jonathan and David about friendship or fellowship between believers, but that's not the focus here. The focus here is Jonathan's devotion to God's chosen and anointed king. The focus this morning is not your love for your fellow believers, genuine and important and powerful, that is. The focus this morning is our love for Jesus. Jonathan loved God's King. The language of devotion could not be more emphasized. He was knit to the soul of David. He loved him as his own soul. And that is what God's anointed King forever, the Lord Jesus, merits and inspires. Notice I have not said demands, inspires or merits. When one is a believer, a spark is ignited. There is electric love for Jesus. You do not learn to love him. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Picture Jesus in your minds as he was asked that question. Imagine you asking that question, Jesus, what's the most important thing in all of the earth that I must do? He says to you, you shall love me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as a believer, when you hear these words from Jesus and you look at him as he is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, these words describe exactly who Jesus is to you. They ring true. You love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Think of Jesus going out before you to fight your battles, facing up to Satan's sin, judgment, and death on the cross to save you. See him dying for you, and the words of this hymn I find so moving, Stuart Townend's Christmas Carol from the squalor of a borrowed stable. Jesus fights for breath. He fights for me, loosing sinners from the claims of hell, and with a shout our souls are free death defeated by Emmanuel. Or another hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, the last verse, where the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When you sing these words as a believer, these words do not hit you with a rebuke or a challenge. You sing these words and you sing a song in your heart that is true. I will always love you, Jesus. I will give my life for you. Do you love him? Jesus said to Peter, do you love me, Peter? That is not a question to challenge us. 
It is a question to move us, to invite us, to remind us that we do indeed love him. Like this. When we sing these songs, it is not the words or the music that moves us. The words and the music are moving, yes. What moves us is the response of all-consuming love for the person of Jesus. The love we have for Jesus is different from the love we have for anyone else. He is uniquely precious to each of us as believers. To love him is to treasure him above everything and everyone else. Let me quote to you from John Piper. Loving Jesus is not a matter of doing excellent things. It is a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. Love for him is a response to beauty and greatness and glory. Love for Jesus is pleasurable. It is desiring him because he is infinitely desirable. It is admiring him because he is infinitely admirable. It is treasuring him because he is infinitely valuable. It is enjoying him because he is infinitely enjoyable. It is being satisfied with all that he is because he is infinitely satisfying. Loving Jesus, listen to this, loving Jesus is the reflex of new birth, the awakened and newborn human soul that is able to embrace one who is true and good and beautiful, a champion and a savior who will never leave you nor forsake you, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the love of a believer for Jesus God's anointed King. And if you have never known that kind of love for Jesus, then you are not a believer. You can't be. If you once knew that love for Jesus, but experience it no longer, that is not uncommon. But turn back to him and you will find him there. Turn back to him in your mind and heart, right where you sit, here in church or in your home. Turn around in your mind and heart and you will find him there. Cry out to him from the depths of your heart in the depths of the valley you find yourself in and he will hear you there. Jonathan loved David, God's anointed king, and the love between them was a covenant love. It is a love grounded in unbreakable promises. It is a love that never leaves or forsakes. There is a wonderfully moving conversation. Between Jonathan and David, there are many moving conversations in these chapters. Let me show you one as we come to a close. Chapter 20 and verse 13. Just look that up with me. Covenant love. Chapter 20, verse 13. But should it please my father to do you harm, this is Jonathan speaking, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And then this, then these words, if I am still alive, David, my king, 
Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. This is Jonathan appealing to God's king never, ever to forsake him. And David promises he never will. And in 2 Samuel, we read out, David makes good his promise by caring for Jonathan's son. And if we ask our Lord Jesus, Jesus, will you always love me? Will you promise never to leave me or forsake me? His answer is always the same. I will always love you. How could I not? Nothing can separate you from my love. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And Jonathan served David by protecting him, by encouraging him, by reminding him of God's promises, by speaking well of him, by trusting that God would use him to serve as king. We love the Lord Jesus, God's forever king. It is a covenant love. We serve Jesus. We do what we can. We do all that we can for him. His kingdom is our kingdom. The advance of his kingdom is our primary concern. When we meet as a church family on the 30th of November to look ahead to the future, it is a love for the Lord Jesus. Love for the Lord Jesus that is our motivation to give our time and our talents, our gifts and our money for the work of the gospel. Our Father, please use us to serve Jesus. Jonathan loved him. He served him. And his loyal service was costly. He gave up a great deal, humanly speaking. He gave up a throne. He was estranged from his father, yet honored his father to the last. He died at his father's side, events described in 1 Samuel 31. He died at the side of the king God had rejected. But Jonathan died having pledged his allegiance to God's chosen and anointed king. And so we can say that Jonathan died in the Lord, and so he is eternally safe. And so what is your response to God's king? Is it rejection? Or is it devotion? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these clear narratives in the Old Testament to ask us these direct questions as we look at the Lord Jesus, your chosen and anointed King. May our response be one of devotion, not rejection. And may our devotion lead us to service. And if that service is costly, may we bear that cost gladly. And all if our response has been rejection, but is now devotion. We praise you and thank you for that miracle of new birth that ignites a spontaneous spark of love and zeal and commitment for our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.